In chapter 3, Paul asks the Thessalonians to pray for good weather for the good work. Watch this, verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. See the good weather? Let me read it again. Pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. Isaiah 55 verse 10, As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. You know how encouraging that is to me as a Bible teacher? Man, all i got to do is just get the word out. Because it's not going to go back void. It, it won't go back empty. That goes for every one of us. Do you realize when you hand someone the word of God, whether you speak a verse or teach the word or share something that you learned in Bible study, you are sharing something that cannot go back empty. It must have some impact. And Paul says, I'm asking that you would pray for good weather. The kind of weather that allows the word to come down and be seeded and then grow into a marvelous harvest. The good work of the good word. And this it's always Paul's concern, isn't it? But listen, this is why we pray for each other. Paul says, I don't want you to grow weary in doing good. I want you to be all about the, the good work and the good word. And then he says, pray for us. For the same reason. That the good word would go out. That it would flow. Pray for us. We pray for each other. So that we would receive the comfort of the Spirit. The strength of the Spirit. So that we as a fellowship would not grow weary of doing good. It is that absolute key. Prayer taps into the Spirit who comforts and strengthens us. Now... Do you know when someone's praying for you? Do do you know? Do you get like a tingling electrical sensation? Oh, someone just prayed a prayer for Rick. I just felt it, man. That was good. Oh, there was another one. You know, how how do you know? Do, Do the hairs on the back of your neck stand up? I'm being prayed for. What are you saying, Rick? Listen, I never know when someone's praying for me. I don't have a clue when someone's praying for me unless I hear them in a small group or or they tell me, hey Rick, I'm, I'm praying for you. I've had a couple of people say, I pray for you every day and I'm like, my wife thanks you. <laughs> I, I have become uh, covetous of prayer. I will take as much prayer as anyone is willing to give me and in turn I will give as much prayer as I possibly can because as we pray for each other, We are strengthened to not grow weary of doing good. It's huge. The point is, when, when weariness sets in, it's prayers unawares that gets us through. That there are prayers unawares in your life for you. There have been people who prayed for you and you will never know until we get there. There are people who prayed for you to get saved and you have no idea how hard they were praying or what they prayed or how long they were praying for you to come to the Lord. And then you did. And you think it was your choice. (laughs) And we're right back to the debate. But praying for each other. I I know it's a a fundamental issue in in Christian faith. Oh yeah, we've got to pray. 
We need to understand how effective and how important prayers unawares really are. James said in James 5.16, Pray for one another so that you may be healed. Healed of what? He doesn't say. Don't limit it to a cough or a head cold or cancer. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Of what? Of anything. Man, prayer is healing. And sometimes the healing I need is I've been through a long week and I am weary of doing good and I need to be healed of that weariness. Pray for one another that you will be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And we have been over this as well. You are a righteous person if you are in Jesus Christ. Which means if you pray, righteous one, your prayer will be effective. Well, I'm not sure what words to use. doesn't matter. God's not looking for your words. He's looking for your heart. And so we pray for one another that, that we might be strengthened in the Lord. And then he goes on. I love James says this. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain, on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit, and that's what I call good weather. That's the good weather that Paul is asking for. Man, pray that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly. Pray that it would be glorified. Spreading like like rain and snow coming down in the Skagit Valley and producing a harvest that is rich and full. We go and we see the tulips throughout the valley in the springtime and they're remarkable and they're beautiful and it took a year of good weather to get there. Pray for good weather that the word of the Lord would spread like that. And, Paul says in verse 2, and pray that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men for not all have faith. You might jot this in your Bible. It's not, not, he doesn't say not all have faith. There's a definite article there again. Not all have the faith. What faith? This faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not all have that. There's only one faith that will get you home. Only one faith that brings about salvation and then sanctification, and it's faith in Jesus. Paul says not all have the faith. Pray for us that we be rescued. The word there, rescued, is delivered from perverse and evil men. And the word evil there is poneros. Poneros is ethically speaking, means evil, means wicked, means something else I'll tell you in just a minute. Pray for us to be rescued from perverse and evil men. And Paul already described this group of men. You may recall this, but let me read it to you back in Acts chapter 17. In Acts 17, they're in Thessalonica. And these perverse and evil men show up. And here they are. Listen to this. Verse 2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. This is in Thessalonica. Verse 5. But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. Wicked men from the marketplace. Wicked men is poneros. 
So it's the same word describing these wicked, these, these evil guys. But this is what's interesting. Wicked men from the marketplace. From the marketplace is the word agorias. Now, if you were with us in uh, Athens, you might recall this, Chris, and anyone who was with us when we were in Athens in our last Israel trip, went to Athens, Greece, and we were taught about the agora. The agora is the marketplace. It's the, the in, in the Greek and Roman cities, you would go down to the agora. We, we'd say, I'm going to the mall. Well, not so much anymore. Malls really aren't the thing. We're going, I'm going to Amazon, we might say. Well, instead of Amazon, they had the Agora. But this word, the Agorios, it's, it's translated both marketplace, but it's also the term used for, get this, petty hucksters, traffickers, and swindlers. Wicked men from the Agorios. Wicked men who are among the hucksters. Wicked, petty traffickers. I love the King James translation of Acts 17, verse 5. Certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. (laughs) And that gets the concept across really well. The Jews went and they got these certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. These guys were hanging around the marketplace. These were the troublemakers. These were the hucksters. These were the evil men. And he went and got them. Or the Jews did. And they brought them to stir up the city and get Paul and Silas and Timothy chucked out. And I thought about this and realized we have a tendency to elevate buying, selling, and capitalism. America is all about the marketplace. The marketplace. Yeah, that, that, that's good stuff. You know what? God looks at the marketplace as the baser side of life. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, for someone to say, well, I made money in the marketplace. Great. If you praise God and know that it came from Him, not a problem. Well, I have a small business. That's fine. I'm not saying there's a problem with that. But the American dream is that that is the thing. That the marketplace is where I'm going to make it big, and I will find my happiness in the riches that I create for myself. And God says, "Uh uh-uh. That is as low-minded as you can get. That's where the lewd and base fellows go. That's the marketplace mentality, and it's connected, poneros, with agorios, the evil market-minded, you might say. And by the way, poneros, I told you has another translation, in addition to being evil, it is also translated full of labors, toils, hardship. It's used to describe someone who's, who's burdened with heavy-duty work. Kind of like Adam. Adam. The curse in Genesis 3.17 is, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you'll eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken for your dust. And to dust you shall return. And that is evil. That is a curse. Not a blessing. What are you saying? Hardship. Labor and toiling and sorrow. That is the evil side of life. That is the base side of life. That is not what God wants for you. What does God want? God wants rest. Enter into my rest, He says. 
Be diligent to enter into my rest. Not all your labors. Man, work hard and maybe, maybe if you sweat enough and you work enough and you labor hard enough and man, you are successful in the marketplace, perhaps then maybe I'll let you into heaven. It's the complete opposite. Enter into my rest, he says. Well, back in 2 Thessalonians, and I really kind of got off my notes, but that's okay. Evil, the poneros, the agorios. Man, Paul had these marketplace manipulators coming after him. These people who were stirring up, and they were lying about his message and his intentions. They were trying to twist it. They were saying he's turning this world upside down. So the question is, what do you do when you're faced with lewd men of the baser sort? What do you do when you're faced with those who who just want to argue you off message? Those who come after you with the ways of the world and, and and they run counter to the message of the gospel of grace that you're just trying to share. What do you do? You pray. You pray. Pray that we'll be rescued from this. Paul is not asking that he have an easy life. That's never Paul's prayer. But he does want to be delivered from lewd men of the baser sort. Why? Because he wants to stay on message. And the message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he says, pray that we'll be delivered. You know, another way to pray that is, Lord, would you just deal with this? Would you just handle this evil? Would you just handle this person who's argumentative and and, and trying to throw me off so that I can stay where I need to? Man, don't get dragged into senseless debates. Like the the lewd and base men of Thessalonica, they were trying to knock Paul off message. That was why the Jews called these men in. We need help. Shutting them down. Don't be distracted from your calling, and if the distractions come, pray to be delivered from them so that you can continue the good work of the harvest. And never, never forget this, verse 3. But the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one, the Hopaneros. The evil one. Ho Paneros is often used to describe or as a moniker for Satan himself. So we have these evil men who were Poneros. They were just working in the servitude of the evil one, Satan himself. But listen, God is faithful. God is at work. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2.12, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Verse 4. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do, note this, what we command. Well, that's a little bossy, Paul. Keep doing what we know you're going to do it. You're doing great. Just keep doing what we command you. Is that bossiness? Not at all. Because, listen, what Paul commands is what Paul himself had been commanded. He's not telling them to do anything that he's not doing or hasn't been called to do himself. And what is that? Live the gospel. Live the gospel. The paradosis. The the authoritative instruction, the ordinances, the traditions, if you will, that they had been taught. Man, live the gospel. Live Christ. Let this be your lifestyle. That's what we preached to you. That's what we commanded you. What He commanded to us. 
Paul might even put it this way, practice what you preach. He might say, practice what I preach. Because Paul did practice what he preached. I know that's kind of an archaic statement these days, but we have to practice what we preach if we want to have the right to preach it. You can't say it and not do it. Cheryl, the kids with me from time to time, she goes, well, honey, there was another sermon where you hammered on drinking. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess I did. It comes up a lot in the Scriptures, you know. And, and oh, I know a lot of Christians drink casually. I get that. Why does it keep coming up and why do I mention it? I'll tell you what, it's a personal thing with me. And the personal thing is that I never had a problem with having a glass of wine myself. You know, on a, I never really liked the taste of beer, so that was out. But having a, a, a nice glass of wine with a fancy meal, I thought, that's cool, that's fine, not a big deal. I'm not getting drunk. I limit myself. You know, one glass, no big deal. And then, then as we're teaching through the Word of God, we come to Proverbs, and I started to get hammered, not by wine, but by the Word of God. And I would come home and go, Shell, this is what it says. And this is not what I'm doing. What, did the Bible say that drinking wine is a sin? No. No, it doesn't. It does say, Proverbs 31, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink and forget themselves. Give strong drink to those who are perishing. I'm like, okay, well that's not me. I'm not perishing. You know. And I, I remember specifically reading that and I finally came to the conclusion, I'm no king. I'm no lord. But I am a pastor in a church. And I got so convicted. I can't drink. Is it a problem? Is it a sin for me to do so? No. But I can't do it. Why can't you do it? Because if I preach it, I have to do what I preach. Now, if you take the attitude that you got to do what you preach, and you have to teach through the entire Bible, guess what? It will mess you up. Deb likes to, on occasion, tell me there's preaching and there's meddling. Well, Pastor, this morning, you were meddling. Yeah, try being me, Deb. I'm a whole life meddled with every time I open the book. Paul said it this way. 1 Corinthians 9.27 I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others I myself will not be disqualified. Disqualified from what, Paul? Your salvation? No. He's not going to lose his salvation. But I'll tell you what, he might lose the right to preach about something. Is there anything in your life about which you cannot preach? Is there any behavior in your life that you're like, well, I can address all this over here, but that one I can't speak to because I do it. So when it comes to this area, I have to be mum's the word. See, Paul's attitude, and I love it, and it's so convicting to me. I never want to be mum's the word about anything that is in the word. And so, man... Do what we command, Paul says. And he has the right to say it because he is doing the very things that he commands. That were commanded of him by Jesus Christ. Verse 5. You guys are doing really well tonight. May the Lord... I love this verse. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Now faith, hope, and love abide these three 
1 Corinthians 13.13. But the greatest of these is love. We need to understand, and we need to come back to this again and again, that if the love of God doesn't characterize our faith, then our faith is off. In fact, John was so serious about it when he wrote 1 John chapter 4, he questions that if we're not being loving, he questions whether we know God at all. 1 John 4 verse 8, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Period. Let's not backpedal or soften that or or water it down. If I don't love, I don't know God. Because God is love. John says, by this, the love of God was manifested, not just to us, manifested in us. That is, the love of God was seen in us. That God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. That is, into the love of God. When you come into faith in Jesus Christ, you come into the love of God. We have no choice but to live the love of God. And if we are not loving toward each other and toward non-believers in our behavior, in our attitudes, in our speech, in our Facebook posts, if it is not loving, then pause for a moment and ask yourself, do I even know God? If it doesn't express the love of God, wow. And he says, and and also into the steadfastness of Christ. I like the King James translation of that. Into the patient waiting for Jesus. Steadfast. Patiently waiting. And, And it strikes me again that that is the divine tension. Love and waiting. Waiting for Jesus. Loving my neighbor as myself. Longing for His return. I'm I'm holding on. I'm steadfast. I'm waiting for you, Lord. But I'm looking for your coming. And He doesn't know you. And she doesn't know you. And He doesn't know you. Oh, God. Use me to save them. Love. Patience. Love. Grace. Truth. It's both. And we are called to be a people who are filled up with the love of God. That we are into the love of God even though it brings about in us that divine tension between the waiting and the loving. Now, Paul brings all this together and keep that in mind, the love of God. He brings it all together and concludes the letter. And I would call this a practically pertinent paradosis. Okay, Verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Wait a minute. Paul, you just said, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ, and now you're telling us to cut someone off. Oh, read on. Verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Well, not because we don't have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. Here's the order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. 
For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. And it's a great translation of the word. Unruly busybodies. Unruly or undisciplined is the word atakteo. Atakteo. Undisciplined. It means lazy, idle, disorderly conduct. Atakteo literally described a soldier out of ranks. A soldier who is who is undisciplined, neglecting his duty. That's unruly. Busybody is the word peri ergazomai. You peri ergazomai? I, I wish we used that word today, because that's that's a great word. Busybody? And it literally describes someone who is intrusively idle. They're not doing any work, but they're really working at getting into everybody else's business. Okay, laboring at laziness. Seems like a contradiction. Those who would actually work hard at doing nothing and invading other people's business as they're doing this. Sluggards with attitude. Okay. Those who refuse to work, but they're disturbing and they're disrupting the shalom of a fellowship. And Paul goes after them. These lollygaggers are poking their big sloth noses into everyone else's business. And in verse 12, Paul says, Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Work in quiet fashion? The Greek for this, I think, is technically... Shut up. <laughs> I would put it this way. To work in quiet fashion is to stop bugging your brothers. Do your own work. Keep your nose in your own business. To eat your own bread? Stop sponging off your sisters. There were some people at Thessalonica who were doing both. That this was the behavior. They were all into the welfare state. They wanted to be taken care of, and they wanted to know how everybody else was being taken care of. They were in everybody else's stuff. You may recall, Paul addresses this issue in both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. 1st Thessalonians, he simply says, 1st Thessalonians 4.11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Now, that's a very soft approach. This is much harsher. And it's part of the reason that I think this letter came first. Paul really gets after it here, and then there he just reminds them, you know, we talked about this, so go easy. Verse 14 If anyone, note this, does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. (laughs) May may you be directed into the love of God. (laughs) But cut this loser off. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. That I can do. The love of God stuff, and that's a little tougher, but this, oh man, we'll make lists right and left. You're on the list, man. Paul, what does this mean? 
Keep away, he says back in verse 6. Don't associate with him, verse 14. Put him to shame. Man, where is the love of God in all of this prescription? We're just talking about a lazy gossip. I mean, that's not the greatest thing to be known as. I don't want that on a headstone someday. You know, he was an idle infiltrator. But how bad is it really? I mean, okay, they're over here doing that. Whatever. You know, lazy. I'm not lazy. He is. That's his deal. Where's the love of God in cutting this person off? Listen, in fact, get this. Only twice in all of Paul's letters does he say to cut someone off. Here, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, talking about someone who had committed incest. What? Okay, in Western culture, I don't get this at all because Paul has just equated incest with a lazy gossip. Same difference, cut them both off. How how does that work? Idle gossip and an incestuous relationship are both just as bad? Now, in Western culture, again, incest is a whole lot easier as a reason reason for booting someone out of the church. I'll tell you what, we find out any of y'all is committing incest, you're gone! That's easy, 1 Corinthians 5, boom! But the lazy gossip we tend to tolerate. Why? Think about this. Between these two issues, and I'm not saying any, I'm not supporting, I'm not pulling a trump here. I don't want to be misunderstood as if I'm supporting something that I'm not supporting. Alright? I'm not support in support of incest. It is heinous. It is evil. It is wrong. But, let me ask you this question. Which has the greater risk of destroying a fellowship? The person involved in incest over here to the side that no one knows this is going on? Or the gossip? Which one will more quickly undermine the strength of a fellowship of believers? Suddenly, gossip is not such a light affair. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. Referring to laziness, Paul even goes this far. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow. I remember the first time I, I read that, I thought, i got an open an IRA. I need some life insurance. I gotta take care of my family. <laughs> I'm being facetious. But I do remember reading that as a young husband and thinking, this is a serious responsibility. I gotta take care of my own. I can't rely on my parents anymore to take care of my own. There was a day as a young married guy that I used to think, ah, oh, you know, the, the bottom falls out, we'll just go live in my folks' house. Not a problem. I had a millennial mindset. <laughs> Oh man, this is serious business. Why is it so serious? You know what? It's, I'm going to throw this out as a possibility, and I cannot prove this, but it's entirely likely that the intensity of Paul's directive here is because there's a connection between the disturbing for, the forger and the lazy gossiper. I wonder if it's the same person who's wasting their time and living off the church and bugging everybody, and now they're going around spreading the fact that they think, they believe, the Spirit has told them the day of the Lord has happened. And Paul says, I have no tolerance for that kind of deception, nor for laziness, nor for gossip. I can't prove it, but 
I wonder if they're not one and the same person. Now, the punishment here seems severe. It does. I I get that. But punishment-wise, we don't understand the thinking of the Greco-Roman culture of the first century. It was very huge. It was very strong into honor and shame. It was an honor and shame-driven culture, far more than we are. You know, if, if someone came up to you and said, you dishonor me. We go, well, what am I in an anime here? Is this a Japanese thing? You dishonor me? I mean, whoa, okay, you're Mulan. You dishonored your father. I mean, big deal. We don't, it's not a, we, it's not a thing for us in America. It was a big deal there. The whole idea of dishonoring and shaming, of honor and shame. And so Paul uses this effectively as a tool of discipline. Because discipline has to happen. This kind of talk has to stop. This kind of slothfulness has to end. This is not how you follow Jesus. You don't enter into His rest by being lazy. Your rest and laziness are not the same thing. Rest is peace. And it's the kind of rest, man, when you rest in the Lord, you're going to work harder than anybody else for the kingdom. Because you're at rest in Jesus. But on the other hand, if you're lazy and slothful, you're not going to do any good for the kingdom at all. It's about discipline. And Paul is laying out discipline. And what is the best way to shut down a lazy gossip? Simple. Don't listen to them and don't feed them. If someone finds out that they can't just show up at your house for a free meal anymore, they're going to have to figure out how to eat somehow. Right? And if someone realizes that you no longer listen when they bring up gossip, they're not going to gossip, at least not around you. Perhaps if enough people in a fellowship stopped listening to gossip, gossip would just cease. And that's the idea, the discipline here. And it also may be, understand that Paul's sending this letter and he has an assumption that all of the fellowship there at Thessalonica will hear this letter read out loud together. They'll all be there, which means the lazy, you know, idle gossip is sitting there in the front row with his bread that he got from the brother three rows back, you know, munching on this, and all of a sudden this starts to come down. He's going, oh man, he's talking about me. He's talking about, yeah, and everybody knows they're all looking at him. And if 2 Thessalonians came first, guess what? The warning was enough. The warning was enough. Because then when we read what he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's much lighter. It's just a reminder. Don't slide back to that. And that's how Paul worked. You know, he would lay out this discipline. Understand, look at what he says in the very next verse, verse 15. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. That's the, that's the context for all of this. What is, Rick? Love. That discipline comes from a place of love, not a place of malice. We're not dissociating with someone and saying, that's it, cut off, you're out, we don't ever want to see your face again. No. The idea of disassociating yourself with someone who is sinning like this is, man, we can't tolerate that here. I think the right way to put it is, we want you here. We love you, brother. We, we adore you, sister. But we cannot tolerate this kind of behavior. And therefore, if you're going to continue to sponge off of people and gossip as you're doing it, that's not okay. So, until you're ready to change your behavior, you can't be here. That's what Paul's saying. 
Man, this is not toward an enemy with malice. It's toward a brother with admonishment. By the way, there's a word for that. It's functional. See, the dysfunctional family puts up with the lazy gossip. Ignores it, hoping it'll just go away. The dysfunctional family also puts up with the incestuous brother. But let's not go there. The dysfunctional family, what I'm saying is, is okay with sin in the body. We just don't want to deal with it. So we're going to worship God with a big pink elephant right in the living room. Right there in the sanctuary. That's what the dysfunctional family does. The functional family says, we've got to discipline each other. Really, it ought to be self-discipline in the Lord, but you know what? If I'm not disciplined, I need your help. I need you to love me enough to discipline me in the Lord. And I will love you enough to discipline you in the Lord. And together then we will grow into the love of God. Which is the whole point of what Paul's saying. 2 Timothy 1.7 God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Hebrews 12.7 God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And by the way, talk about lazy sluggards. Jesus said to the lethargic, lukewarm church at Laodicea, Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. We use Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 as the picture of the pathetic church. And Jesus says, and I love them, so I will discipline them. I love you. That's why I'm calling you out. Paul loves, I would submit to you, he loves this person or these people, which is why he's calling them out. Because that's what love does. It's the intent of all spiritual discipline. Okay, last thing, and we're done tonight. Some have tried to say that with this, the Thessalonian problem of idle laziness was really just due to eschatological enthusiasm. They were so excited about the coming of the... I've seen this in several commentaries and and many preachers have gone down this route. Oh, they were just so excited about the coming of Jesus, they were being lazy, and so Paul had to say, stop being lazy. You know, if the rapture is about to happen, why go to work tomorrow? If Jesus is coming any minute, man, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we fly. I think that's misinformed guesswork. I don't think that's what's going on. For one thing, Paul never hints that eschatology is the source of the lethargy. He never makes that connection. And in verse 10, he says, For when we were with you, we used to give you this order. So this was already a problem when Paul was in Thessalonica. This wasn't something that cropped up after he taught them Bible prophecy. It was already there. It was already an issue that there were these lazy sluggards. And thirdly and finally, in both letters, Paul does not moderate or mollify the end times message at all. You would think if these people were hyperactive with prophecy that he might have softened his tone a bit. But he doesn't. He is full bore. Jesus is coming. You need to be ready. We're going to fly. Hey, live with the imminency of his return. Paul's all over that. And I don't think he would be so strong on that if it was a problem with the people. But most of all, get this, the imminent return of Jesus does not produce idleness. 
a belief in all the things that we've been studying. This is why we have sat in this area of the rapture of the church. Three Sundays, we're going to do it again on this next Sunday. It's why we're talking Bible prophecy and really getting into it. Because nothing, my friends, nothing has worked like rocket fuel to my faith, like a knowledge that Jesus is coming any moment. It does not make people lazy. Exactly the opposite. Hebrews 6.11, we desire that each one of you should show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And John said, 1 John 3.3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Man, the more you focus on the coming of the Lord Jesus, the more intense your faith is going to be. I promise you. The more you study Bible prophecy and recognizing Jesus coming at any time, the more excited and innervated and on fire you will be for the Lord. It will not make you lazy. Verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace Himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. And note this, this is now only the fifth time, it's the last time, but it's only the fifth time in both letters that Paul talks in the first person. Back in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, but Satan hindered us. That was the first time. 1 Thessalonians 3.5, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you. I I sent Timothy back to you, Paul says. 1 Thessalonians 5.27 I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 5 Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And then 2 Thessalonians 3.17 right here I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is what the way I write. Why does he say that? He's making sure that they understand this letter came from him. This is a Pauline letter. This was written by my hand. So don't be disturbed by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. This is from us. Look at how I write. And Paul signs off on every word here personally. And his final words are the same as with every letter. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.